taunting us. You couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> they saluting you. <laughs> They're saluting fellow braves. <laughs> Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Today we are, for the first time, in the region that will become South Africa. It is believed modern humans first settled the area around 125,000 years ago with various ancestors and cousins of Homo sapiens there before that. Tribes of hunter-gatherers and animal herders did their thing for thousands of years until the Portuguese explorers showed up at the end of the 15th century. A few years before Columbus sailed west, Bartolomeu Dias attempted to sail around the southern end of Africa to get to the Far East. Dias's expedition stalled out here when his crew demanded to return home. The following decade, Vasco da Gama made it all the way around Africa to India. As it was at literally the turning point in the voyage, the southern tip of Africa made the perfect point to set up a waypoint for travelers. In the 1650s, Cape Town was established by the Dutch East India Company. Colonization of the area wasn't initially the goal, but happened anyway. In addition to Dutch settlers, the area also saw German Lutherans and French Huguenots move in. These three groups blended together to give us the white Boer population, who are now the Afrikaners of South Africa today. While not exactly synonymous, Boer and Afrikaner basically refer to the same group, Boer may just have a more rural connotation. The language Afrikaans is a sort of bastardized Dutch, and for me personally, the German and French influence helps explain the names of two of my college teammates from South Africa. We had a Werner and a Francois. Shout out, guys, if you're listening. Slaves were also brought in from other parts of Africa, as the newly arrived Europeans considered it bad form to enslave the local natives though many of them were drafted into indentured servitude. During the Napoleonic era, as the Netherlands and France had bigger fish to fry, Britain ended up controlling South Africa, which it considered important for its own economic interests in the East. In the 1820s, the native Zulu people along the eastern coast of South Africa grew as a regional tribal power, they began to butt heads with the Boer population, who was trying to distance itself from the British control and tried to migrate toward a growing Zulu power, so kind of caught in the middle there. They were able to hold their own, but the British took control of their colony in 1843 and were now themselves sharing a border with the Zulu. Things were apparently stable for a few decades before the British basically decided to pick a war with the Zulu. They made demands they knew the Zulu would not agree to like telling their king, Sechueo, to disband his army. This led to the Battle of Isanduana on January 22, 1879. The Zulu had a few guns, but were mostly armed with spears and leather shields. The British force consisted of about 1,800 men who had a vast advantage in weapons technology with cannon and muskets. But their overconfidence was their undoing. They seemed to have considered the battle itself little more than a formality and let their discipline get lax, and they vastly underestimated the number of Zulu warriors taking the field against them. The Zulu hit them with 20,000 men to Britain's 1,800. 1,300 of the British force were killed. It was one of the most embarrassing defeats in British history. Our movie today, Zulu, opens with the report of this loss as it reached the island of Great Britain. 
In South Africa, we see a Dutch pastor and his daughter attending a Zulu mass wedding. King Sechweo is watching with approval, and though he's only in this scene, they got the king's actual great-grandson to play him in the movie. The two white missionaries leave after learning of the British defeat at Isandawana and head to Rourke's Drift, where their church is. Rourke's Drift was simply an old trading post named for an Irish merchant, and Drift is just another term for ford or river crossing. It had since become a small missionary outpost. A small attachment of about 100 British troops are held up here and begin setting it up as a fortification when they hear 4,000 Zulu warriors are on their way. Many say they should flee, including a posse of Boer men who are on horseback and who the Brits really hoped would stay and fight with them. The British stay out of a sense of pride and duty and basically say, where else are we going to go? A lot of the film is just getting to know the men at the encampment and seeing what life was like for them. Many of the men are historically recorded, though they're not particularly significant outside of their presence at the battle that is about to happen here. There are two or three small buildings. One is set up as an infirmary for ill and injured troops. Here we see men joking around. What's for dinner? Oh, same as usual. Horse meat and axle grease. We meet a man named Hook, who appears to be faking illness simply to get out of duty. He has no interest in being in South Africa at all. There are two young officers who have a bit of an ego battle early on over who actually outranks who. It turns out they were commissioned just a few months apart seven years earlier, so command of the defense of Rourke's Drift goes to the senior of the two. But despite their differences, they grow to work pretty well together and respect each other. One is John Chard, who happened to be nearby with men tasked with building a bridge. The other is Gonville Bromhead, played by a 31-year-old Michael Caine. It's his first major film role, and while he had a handful of previous credits, they were small enough that the opening credits of Zulu say, Introducing Michael Caine. Caine's character Bromhead is pretty elitist and arrogant, though he's never been in a battle. A big part of the film now is just the anticipation of battle. They've set up sandbag walls around the complex, and the men all have their assignments. Long before they see any Zulu, they hear off and on sounds in the distance, like a train from Zulu chants. Finally, the Zulu march toward them in the open, and the British open fire, killing about 60 before the Zulu fall back without even actually launching an attack. The British are pleased, but a boar in their camp says the Zulu are merely testing their response. They're watching from a distance to see how much firepower you have, he says. Then the Zulu start firing on the camp from sniper distance with rifles they stole from the British dead at Isandawana. Fortunately, they aren't well trained in firearms, but do pick off a few British soldiers who can only fire back at the smoke and hope for the best. Finally, the Zulu assault them in earnest, and we see the power of their overwhelming numbers. The Zulu almost seem to taunt them. They'll make headway, then fall back, or retreat from the south only to attack the north with a new group of fresh warriors. They're slowly picking off the vastly outnumbered British one by one, but taking heavy casualties of their own. A few Zulu manage to break through the British lines and get to the roof of the infirmary, which they set on fire and attack the sick and the injured. Old Hook reluctantly gets his chance to shine. He becomes essentially the hero of the fighting at the burning infirmary. The Zulu fall back, and that night is illuminated by the fire of the destroyed hospital. The British are up against the ropes now. Many have been killed, and even Chard has been injured, but bounces back to lead with Bromhead's help. They all man their stations for one final time, disciplined to the last. 
The Zulu hit them hard as the British take ships firing and reloading. The British have to fall back from their outer defenses, but they had accounted for this from the start and had built layers of defensive structures. And they survive. Obviously, they didn't kill all 4,000 Zulu, but the Zulu retreat, seeming to no longer consider the attack worth their effort. Chard asks Bromhead how he feels now that he's seen his first action, and he answers, sick and ashamed. The men line up for roll call so they can get a count of who's alive and dead. Thinking it all over with their fortification in ruin, a mass of Zulu again line the ridges around them. Their numbers are staggering. It's as though they haven't even begun to fight. They start singing, and Bromhead curses them for their taunting. But the boar man who's with them says, no, they honor you as fellow warriors. He's right. The Zulu turn and walk away, their singing gradually fading to silence. The closing voiceover of the film says that in the hundred years that Britain had awarded the Victorian Cross at the time of the film, they had given out about 1,000, so 10 a year. Eleven of those went to men defending Rourke's Drift. Basically, it was just the huge moral boost the British needed after the loss at Ilsandawana. There was basically no time between the battles, which I don't feel the movie properly highlighted. The Battle of Rourke's Drift seems to have begun the same day as Ilsandawana, with the 4,000 Zulu being those who left fresh from there to attack Rourke's Drift. I guess that's kind of shown with the missionaries getting news at the beginning, but it was lost on me until looking it up later. The film seems to have got the broad strokes right, but alters a few things for dramatic effect to paint the British in heroic light. While they don't necessarily demonize the Zulu, they do paint them as just this overwhelming horde devoid of any individuals or men worth getting to know. Basically, the Whites are the Fellowship of the Ring, and the Zulu might as well be the Orcs. So, while their defense was commendable, one can't help but wonder, but why were they here in the first place? And the British were the ones who provoked the Zulu into a fight in the first place, which again, the movie doesn't mention. It also omits how the British dealt with the Zulu injured left behind. They just killed them all, regardless of whether or not they could have been saved. And also worth mentioning, the Zulu here were not attacking on the orders of their king. He had specifically told them not to go into British territory. Six months later, the British put an end to the conflict. They knew now not to underestimate the Zulu and defeated them soundly in July and captured their king in August. After the war, Chard got to meet Queen Victoria He remained in the military for the rest of his career, retiring in 1897 before dying of cancer that same year at the age of 49. Bromhead, again played by Michael Caine, served in the Third Anglo-Burmese War after his time in South Africa. He also died young. He was just 45 when he died in India in 1891. It's also worth mentioning that the psychological toll we see the battle take on Bromhead in the film does echo his real life. After their defense of Rourke's drift, The British were still concerned about another Zulu attack and increased their defenses as best they could, even calling it Fort Bromhead. Bromhead wasn't himself after the battle. Another officer later recorded that Bromhead wouldn't talk and just sat and smoked, seeming lost in thought. If someone mentioned their defense of Rourke's Drift, he'd get excited and would get up and work for a bit, still not talking. There also seems to have been some grumbling about how heroes were made of the men at Rourke's Drift. One man who was there wrote, It is very amusing to read the accounts of Chard and Bromhead. Bromhead is a stupid old fellow, as deaf as a post. Is it not curious how some men are forced into notoriety? And another set of Bromhead. He's a capital fellow at everything except soldiering. 
And finally, let's talk about the British Empire, the largest in world history and unlikely to be rivaled again. At its height, nearly one quarter of the world's population and one quarter of its landmass would be under British control. The simple version, because that's what we do here, is that Portugal and Spain initially led the way with the Age of Exploration. As this opened up new markets and resources for them, France, Britain, and the Netherlands wanted to get in on the action. Despite its losses in the Americas, Britain rose to the top. Partly, it seems, because its rivals had larger issues to deal with at home. They had total dominance over the world's seas, which gave them supremacy in the world's economy. From 1815, the fall of Napoleon, to 1914, the start of World War I, we had a time known as the Pax Britannica. This is also why the language of English is so common all across the world. The United States, of course, helps keep the learning of English relevant, but it all starts with the British Empire. The film Zulu does have a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes and is very much worth a watch. Other than hand-to-hand combat scenes being a little unrealistic, it, it holds up pretty well. Elsewhere in the world around this time? Obviously, we jump past the American Civil War for now, which ended 14 years before the Battle of Rourke's Drift. Three years before the Battle of Rourke's Drift, General Custer was defeated by Native Americans at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Albert Einstein was born in 1879, the same year our film today is set. And two years later, in the Arizona Territory of the United States, there was the famous gunfight at the OK Corral. That's where we're headed next week, with the movie Tombstone, starring Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp and Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday. <laughs>